All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is May 31st, 2023, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I am in Noblesville, Indiana, speaking with Luke Kinley, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? Born in uh, Fort Stockton, Texas, on March 28th, 1945. And uh, what were your parents' names? Uh, Howard Kenley Jr., my dad. My mother was Elvera Heider, H-A-Y-T-E-R. And um, she, my dad was in the service training with a crew to go in a B-17 to fly in the European theater. Mm. And he was training in El Paso, Texas, and they, they trained as a crew. And I don't know if you've ever seen the old movie Memphis Bell where they... Hmm. It's okay. You, you can pull it up on Netflix. It's a pretty good movie. Yeah, and it's how the theory was in the with the B seventeens, B twenty fours. Why they had the crew all trained together after they'd done their individual training. And then they trained together out in El Paso for about eight or ten months. And then they flew to Foggia, Italy, and then he flew thirty five missions all the way to Berlin. And while he was in El Paso, he met my mother. Who had been raised on a um, her parents, my grandparents had homesteaded a ranch out in far west Texas, wow. kind of in the middle of nowhere, and um, she'd been raised on the ranch and uh, went to the predecessor of UTEP, University of Texas at El Paso, which was then called Texas Western College of Mines and Agriculture, and so she was a student. He was in the service, and they met. And he was there for quite some time, and, and then they eventually got married, and then I was born while he was overseas. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so, how did you get to Indiana? Dad and his family um, lived here in Noblesville at that time. They'd lived in a lot of places around Indiana because during the Depression, his father, my grandfather, it was hard for people to get work, and he mm -hmm. was a, a retail store manager and a meat cutter. In fact, this building here is um, <clears throat> that you're in was one of the stores that we had here in Noblesville. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, this uh, <clears throat> I know we're, you know, but this store is downtown, and that was that's the first store I remember when I was about five years old. Oh wow. Okay. Jeez. And then. Uh, on the lot out in front here, this this building was the second store, and I was 11 year olds and old and worked in that store. And then, uh, so this little corner of the room's got some pictures. It's kind of in the family history, and that's my father there, the one that was in the service. So wow, okay, so you've you've been in Noblesville for a while then. Yes, <laughs> and my wife's even been here longer. Her family, the Butler family. <clears throat> Uh, originally lived at Fifth and Maple, and um, I don't know which of the her ancestors it would be. I think it was her great 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 grandfather. He got a he he had the his house was the legal description was lot one block one in the city of Noblesville, and the deed was signed by William Connor, the mm. guy who started Connor Prairie and all that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so they, her family never moved out of Noblesville. I guess. <laughs> since 1821. Jeez. Yeah, that must be interesting then to, I mean, I, I assume Noblesville has expanded quite a bit since you 
first got here? Noblesville grew, and it was a county seat town through the time Sally and I graduated from high school, which was 1963, and it was about 6,000 people. Yeah. And at that time, uh, Carmel had about 1,200 people. Wow. Fishers had about 500 people. Westfield had about 2,000 people because it was a pretty large Quaker population okay. there. And Sheridan maybe had 1,000 people, and then Noblesville was 6,000. And it had stayed that way since about 1865 at the end of the Civil War uh, up until about <clears throat> the time we left high school, which is in the middle 60s. Yeah. And then when we came back after I'd been in uh, to college and law school and the Army, um, it, it had grown about eight, to about 8,500 people, and today it's 71,000 people. <laughs> Huge jump. Yeah. Carmel and Fishers are both near 100,000. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah, it's, it must be interesting to, to look back and see how things have changed. A lot of difference. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, <clears throat> do you have any siblings? Um, I have um, four brothers and one sister and a stepsister and a stepbrother. Okay. And uh, my mother uh, died when I was nine years old, and I was the oldest of six children. Mm. And uh, so that was kind of a hard yeah, time. Sure. And my dad was running a grocery business, which is, you know, a lot of hours and everything. And about three years later, he married another um, lady, Marcia Kaler, who, who was my stepmother, and she had a, a boy and a girl. So there were eight of us in the family. Mm -hmm. Eight kids grew up together, basically. Yeah. Wow, okay. They don't have families like that anymore. Not as much, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're much rarer now. <laughs> uh, let's see. So how would you describe your childhood then, growing up? Well, um... It was a pretty traumatic experience uh, when my mother died, and I was the oldest, and so things were kind of um, I, I don't, a little bit gloomy for a few years until my yeah. dad remarried. And uh, what we did was we spent the winter or the school year here in Noblesville. And then uh, my grandmother in West Texas had taken uh, Jimmy and Tommy, the number four and number five boys, who were they were very young, and she kept them for two years at the ranch till they got ready to go back to school. And then she wow. she sent one back to school up here, and then the other one, youngest one, Bobby, went to Texas, and so the rest of us would uh, uh, be here through the school year and uh, everything kind of smoothed out when dad remarried but we'd be here through the school year and then we would all go to the ranch okay the, the day after school was out and then we'd come back a couple of days before school started again because it was hard to hold a fam that many kids together you know? yeah and then as we got older why at all wow so that was a good experience actually it was kind of tough but yeah by today's terms but yeah you learn a lot i guess you learned a lot you learned how to and particularly in my case being the oldest child why well, i was yeah. always pushed out to have to do all <laughs> kinds of adult type duties from yeah from a very early age and uh, 
But we all, all eight of us, uh, seven of the eight of us graduated from college, and the one that didn't had a real good job with Firestone Industrial Products. He was a very mechanically oriented guy, and and uh, so I, I was the oldest child, and I went to uh, Miami of Ohio and graduated in 67. Then I married my wife, Sally, who had I dated in high school here at Noblesville, and she graduated from Butler University with an elementary education major. And then David was the second child. He's 14 months younger than me, and he's a retired OBGYN doctor. Oh, okay. And then Carol, Jill, and Pam, the two girls, were both school teachers, and they're now retired. Yeah. And Jim was a, he was a financial analyst for Manufacturers Hanover Trust in New York City, and he was in Amsterdam for a few years. Wow, okay. And uh, he lives in Sarasota, Florida, and then Tom is retired. Uh, he, he was a township trustee here in Noblesville, and uh, Greg Schwire is the one that worked at Firestone, and then Bobby is a professor at Purdue. He got an a undergraduate degree at MIT and then a, a master's degree from Purdue in some kind of engineering, and then he got a PhD from Stanford, so he's the brains of the operation. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like a pretty successful family. It all part. worked out under kind of yeah. what you might consider to be difficult circumstances. Sure. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, so who would you say then were the most influential people in your childhood? Well, my father um, was a really interesting guy, and he was real smart, and he was raised in the Depression. He was raised, he was pretty poor, and when he came back from World War II, he had quite a military service record, which he never told hardly anybody about. But he was a very successful retailer, and uh, he was he was a kind of a pretty strict disciplinarian in those early years. And he died a couple of years ago at the age of 99, and he mm. was still living in his own home by himself. Wow. And um, he was an interesting guy in that uh, as he went through life, he adjusted to the different ages, but he always seemed to be trying to figure out how to make himself to be a better person. Mm. And, you know, he wasn't a warm and fuzzy guy, I remember when we were children. But then when the grandchildren came along and he dealt with younger people, why he, he, he worked real hard to become, yeah. uh, to fill that role, you know. Sure. And uh, so he was kind of an interesting role model in that he, uh, yeah. he, it was quite clear that he was always trying to make himself be a better person, even into his 70s and 80s and 90s, which most people by then have decided, hey, I'm not going to do, yeah. I'm not gonna do anything more. You right. Know? So he was a very influential guy in my life. And in fact, I was a pretty good student, and I went to Miami of Ohio, and after I figured out I could get good grades, I decided I didn't want to worry about that anymore. So I became a big fraternity guy and had a lot of fun and didn't work okay. <laughs> very hard at my grades. And um, But anyhow, I was had been encouraged by an economics professor over there to take the law school aptitude test and maybe consider going to law school. And so I did that, and I got a real high score. I was always real... Taking these standardized tests was always really easy for me. Okay. And uh, so I got a high score. In fact, it was the highest score anybody in Miami had ever gotten. And so when I uh, 
I applied to some law schools. I applied to IU down in Bloomington and Michigan and uh, University of Virginia. And I went home at Christmas, and my dad said, well, if you're so smart, how come you didn't apply to Harvard? And uh, I said, well, that application's $100. I don't need to pay them 100 bucks just to tell me no, you know. Yeah. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay for that one. So he paid for me to fill out the application, and I yeah. sent it in, and I got accepted. Wow. So I ended up going to Harvard Law School. So that shows you what kind of, just yeah. a little insight into what kind of a guy he was. Yeah. And probably the second most influential person was my grandmother in West Texas, who had homesteaded property out there with her husband. Mm -hmm. uh, her, her mother had been a um, school, school teacher, and she was divorced. She had four children, and she lived in Helena, Montana. Mm. And she got an offer to be a school teacher in a one-room school in a little place called Hovey, Texas. And she drove a wagon from Helena to Hovey, Texas wow. over the summer, and she took that teaching job. And then my grandmother was only two years old at that time, and then about 16 years later, she and my grandfather got married, and they began homesteading property there in, in the Hovey, Texas area. Jeez, okay. And so she ran the ranch, and she had literally, they literally lived six miles from the nearest neighbor, 11 miles to the nearest paved road. They had no electricity until 1972, and of course no TV and yeah. no telephone or anything like that. So when you'd go out to the ranch, it was like stepping back into the 1870s in terms of your lifestyle. Like that, yeah. And so you go down there, and and survival was a big deal and so she had when you're five or six you could uh, you had to feed the chickens and then clean all their stuff up and then when you're nine or ten why well, you that you graduate to milk and the milk cows and made her own butter and gathered her own eggs and she had two or three gardens that she kept you wow have to learn how to work in a garden and all those things yeah. and then uh, Luckily, because I was the oldest of the 13 grandchildren that would be out there during the summer, why <clears throat> my uncle made me the, his assistant cowboy. So I did a lot of uh, riding horses with him through the summer, working cattle in different ways. And sometimes, sometimes we'd literally spend virtually every day of the summer riding and working cattle, you know. Wow. So, so that was a quite different experience than most kids. In yeah, sounds like it. Had. Sounds like it. Yeah, that's, but that my is grandmother neat. was a great person, and she was very practical, mm. and she knew how to be a survivor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely key, uh, especially in those days. Yeah. Wow. So, what did you know about your family's politics growing up? Well, um, the. Um, my dad's family were all Republicans. In fact, he was a city council member here in Noblesville. And he had been over in Italy, as I said, and uh, he had, uh, he came back with, they had a point system for the Air Force guys. And you could get out if you had 75 points. Okay. And he had 175 points, so he was way over there. So he was going to process out at Camp Atterbury um, to be a civilian, and he'd been in the service for five years at that point. And um, 
he went in and talked to these two majors, and he said he knew that something was wrong when these two majors wouldn't really look at him. And the guys ahead of him had been a couple of pilots, and they both had about 80 points, and they got out, and they were real happy to get out of the yeah. service. And But they didn't look at him, and finally he's... And they said, well, Howard, we're going to send you to Japan for the invasion of Japan. And my dad, who was normally a real moderate kind of a guy, said, he said, I came unglued. I got all upset. He said, these guys had 80 points. They'll get out. How come I can't get out? And and, uh, so the guy said, well, you're a navigator, and you have all of those skills. We don't have navigators with your skills. Yeah. But we got pilots by the dozen. So... We're going to have to send you to Japan. So he got in an old car that he had, and he drove to the ranch. He picked up my mother and me. I was about a year old at this point, or a little less, and drove to San Diego to wait for orders. And um, while he was at San Diego, they dropped the bomb, the atomic bomb, and Harry Truman was the president. And my dad's explanation of how he felt about that was that he never loved a damn Democrat so much in his life. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the other hand, out in West Texas, yeah. they were still fighting the Civil War all over again, so yeah. they were all Democrats. Wow. And I can remember once when my grandfather saw me rope a calf and he thought I did a pretty good job. He says, look at that damn Yankee catch that calf. <laughs> so I don't know. The, I was raised under mixed politics. Yeah. But I'd have to say that the Democrats in those days out in Texas were probably as conservative as any Republican sure. is around here. Right, yeah, true. <laughs> wow, okay. You're getting more stories than you wanted. No, I mean, this is great because, uh, you know, the, the idea is really to to get like who a person was and, and how that affects, you know, how, who they were in the legislature. So sure. definitely good stories. Um, so how did you view Indiana while you lived here growing up? And... Well, uh, we had, a, although we didn't know it, uh, we had a very kind of an ideal um uh, raising here in Noblesville. It was a nice-sized town, and a lot of... There was a Firestone plant, so you had a fair number of blue-collar workers there, and it was a relatively uh, prosperous town, and you you just grew up... You, you, you could play baseball in the summer, and you could do all kinds of things, and um, so we grew up in a pretty nice friendly existence and uh, everybody knew everybody in the high school class. We have about 135 people in my graduating class. Hmm. So um, it, it was an, it, it, looking back at it, Sally and I realized when we decided to come back here and live here that it was a good place to raise a family and yeah. a good family town. So it, it was a nice environment. Yeah, that's great. And you enjoyed the schools and stuff here? Or? Yes. Um, <clears throat> very involved in, I played all different kinds of sports, and which was good. And um, so we were, Sally and I were both pretty active in school and did a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, how did your awareness of politics change when you were in college? Um... I, I wasn't a politically ever 
a politically active person. I had opinions about politics, but I wasn't a person like a lot of young people like they join the young Republicans yeah. and they get involved in it. I never did any of that. Right. Um, the, the closest I came was joining a fraternity, which was a social thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. an organizational thing with a purpose. Um, graduated from college in 67, and, and the Vietnam War became quite an issue the last couple of years of college. Yeah. And so when I graduated, um, there was a question about the draft and how they, they, they just... The com- country needed more people, more men, and so they were starting to draft quite a few people. So if you had dropped out of college or something like that, you almost certainly got drafted. Yeah. And uh, so they, at the time that I graduated, they decided to give everybody who was going to graduate school a one-year deferment, and then at the end of that year, they'd see where you stood, and. Uh, so I went through my first year at Harvard Law School, and of course the attitude toward the Vietnam War in Boston, Massachusetts, yeah. was totally different than the Midwest. And yeah. in the Midwest there was some unrest, and particularly on college campuses, there were discussions about, uh, well, this is, there's no reason for us to be fighting, this is not a just war, on and on and on. And uh, But when you got to the East Coast, it was just almost... Uh, the roar was so loud it was incredible so finally I worked out an arrangement to um, the draft board in my second year of law school and my father-in-law was on the draft board and he called me in October and he says you're number two on the list which means you're going to get drafted next month Yeah, because they they let the deferments expire and um so I said, well, Joe, give me a chance to figure something out here. I said, I hate not to finish my second year of law school because I don't know if I'll come back if I just have one year done. And uh, so I found an arrangement where I could enlist in January in the Army and get a six-month delayed entry if, you're, if I would go to officer candidate school. So that's what I did. I signed up for that. And so... I was working that out and going to have to go to the draft. And during that year, we had about 500 people in our law school class. 276 guys left the law school because of the draft, Mm. but most of them went to Canada. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very few of them uh, went to the service. And I was, I found out later, I was actually the only person of the 276 that became an officer in any branch of service. Wow. So the anti-war feeling was very strong. So that was yeah. kind of the first big political uh, issue that, that I can remember really dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a wild time. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, and, and that year, second year of law school, was the year that um, um, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yeah. And, and I'd heard Martin Luther King speak on the Boston Commons out there. Wow. And uh, then later in the summer, why Robert Kennedy got killed. So that year was just completely full of turmoil. Yeah, yeah, jeez. Um, and so what did you do next then? You know, I... Well, at the end of my second year of law school, we packed up and came home, and, and I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for basic and AIT, and then I went to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, 
and began a six-month officer candidate school training program, and I graduated in May of 70. And uh, the way it worked at um, uh, with the service was they have all these branches, like they have the infantry and artillery and transportation and signal corps and yep. military police and adjutant general, which are the paperwork guys and all this. So I finished at the top of my class, so that meant I got my choice of branch and assignment. So I chose a position there at Fort Belvoir for my first year, and you would spend one year stateside duty, and then you're supposed to go to Vietnam. And um, so I spent my one year stateside duty and was levied to go to Vietnam, and then Lyndon Johnson came on TV and said they're going to start calling the troops back, or Nixon said this, they're going to start calling the troops back. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's great, but too late for me because I've already been levied. Well, within about 15 days, they canceled my levy, and then about two months later, they called me in and asked me if I was planning to make a career out of the military, and I said, no, I'm just a civilian soldier, you know. Yeah. And uh, so when I told them I wasn't going to stay in, they said, okay, we're going to, we don't really need you anymore, so we're going to give you a six-month early out. So I ended up getting back to law school almost a whole year quicker than I thought I would. Wow. So I went back to law school and um, did my last year of law school, and we had our twin boys were little babies at that point, and so Sally just took care of them the boys and I went to law school and uh, then we I t- interviewed and I had job offers pretty much all over the country wherever I wanted to go but Sally wanted to come back to central Indiana so okay. I took a job in a in a medium-sized law firm in Indianapolis about 30 lawyers and uh, we lived up here in Noblesville and I drove back and forth to work and I was there for a couple of years and I liked the work that I was doing, and I liked the people that I worked with, but I just didn't feel I was in the right place. And I think this goes back to sort of my family Mm -hmm. upraising because uh, my dad was an independent small businessman, and then here my grandparents in West Texas, they were running their own little ranch. So we're a pretty independent crowd. And um, so I... um, I quit the law firm, and I came back to Noblesville... My dad was thinking about retiring, and none of us kids wanted him to sell the store. It was kind of like the family cornerstone. I said, let me help you for a few years, and then I'll go practice law. So I got into the supermarket business with him, and um, the town was beginning to grow, so there were opportunities. And I liked the idea of owning my own business, and you do your own advertisements every week, and you You'd lay out the stores, and when you we expanded this store a couple times, and I would always you'd be doing that, and then you'd work with your employees, and you had a lot of young high school people, and that was their first job they ever had. Yeah. And it was kind of fun. Yeah. They had a lot of enthusiasm for the job, but, of course, they needed somebody to teach them a little something, and so it was sure. kind of fun to help develop these young people. And uh, so I... I ended up staying in the supermarket business for 25 years. Wow. And uh, we expanded the this store, this building that we're in here. It had been expanded a couple of times. And then I bought another store, and that was pretty successful. And so um, by the time we got done, we had about 200 employees in two stores. We had a nice business. And, oh, 
about the second or third year after I got I was back here uh, the city court judge was a, was a fellow who had been uh, a practicing law and the Indiana um, Supreme Court passed a disciplinary rule that said you can't practice law and be a judge even in a part-time court mm. so he had to quit okay so <clears throat> they called me and the guy who had been the city court judge was a a friend of mine, a couple, three years older, and he said, why don't you be the city court judge? You're the only lawyer in town who's not practicing law, and we need somebody who's under has been to law school. Right. And I said, well, I don't think that's a good idea, Jerry. I'm busy, and I don't, I don't, that's all criminal law, and yeah. I didn't do any criminal law. And uh, so he said, well, come on up to court and uh, find out, just one Thursday and see what you think. So, it's Noblesville, still small town. So he just had court one day a week, and usually just Thursday morning. And mm -hmm. so I went up there, and all these people are coming up there, and you got drunk driving charges and kids that have been out drinking, and then you got assault and battery on a domestic dispute, and then you got a dog running loose somewhere. And so you're taking care of all that stuff. And I came back to the store, and Jerry called me up, and he says, "What do you think?" I said, well, I think about half of these people shop at the store. I don't think it'd be very good for business if I was a judge. And uh, <clears throat> so I thought that was the end of it. And then about three weeks later, I get a call from an old fellow who was the Hamilton County Republican chairman. He says, this is Bob Webb. Are you a Republican? I said, yeah, I'm registered as a Republican. And he said, well, I'm going to appoint you as a city court judge. And he hung the phone up. <laughs> So I wow. sat there and looked at the phone for a little bit, and uh, I, I thought, what should I do about this? And so I decided, well, maybe I could do that and call it my civic duty. Uh -huh. And so I agreed to be the city court judge, and that was in 1974. And um, so... A couple of weeks later, I got a call from the governor's office, and Otis Bowen was the governor at that time. And this person said to me, say, when are you going to come down here and get sworn in as city court judge? And that was when I realized that this Bob Webb really didn't have the power to mm. tell me I was the city court judge. He just recommended to the governor. Yeah. So I had to go down there and get sworn in. And I, when I took the job, the local paper interviewed me. I said, well, I'll do this as my public service, but I won't run for office. If somebody wants to run for it, they can yeah. run for it. Yeah. And um, if anybody wants the job, why well, they can have it. Yeah. So uh, I should have known nobody would ever want that job. <laughs> so I was a city court judge from 1974 to 1989. Wow. And during that time, I tried over 5,000 drunk driving cases. And the caseload, Noblesville was a modest-sized town. During those years, the growth was so much that I went from having... 500 cases a year to 5,000 cases a year and at the same time my business was growing and I had 200 employees and I was kind of meeting myself coming and going and my boys were ready to go off to college so I, I resigned as city court judge hmm. and that was 89 and then three years later uh, there was a fellow here in town named Dick Dellinger who had been a state representative from Noblesville. 
he was the government teacher at the high school, and we all knew Mr. Dillinger, and I'd been the senior class president, and yeah. he, was the, he was the class sponsor. So he, he was running for the Senate seat that I held for a long time, and he called me at the end of June, and he says, I'm going to retire because I've got a personal health problem, and he says, a bunch of us have been talking, and we want you to run for the state Senate. And I said, well, I don't want to do that, Dick. And uh, so they wouldn't give up. So after a while, they talked to me into running. And after I was kind of selected to run, I found out that I was uh, running against an incumbent Democrat in a state Senate where the split was 26-24. So that seat was going to actually be for the control of the Indiana Senate. Wow. And uh, so all these people that are totally involved in the political world, the lobbyists and the, all of the party people from both sides, I mean, they, they, they spent more money on that race than they'd ever spent on a state senate race. And here I am, just a guy trying to run a grocery store. Oh, my gosh. And uh, doing what they tell me to do, going door to door at night. And uh, so anyhow, I, I, I got elected. I beat it. Tony Maidenberg from Marion, Indiana. The district went up to Marion, and he'd been the mayor up there, and he's really a fine guy, and we still stay in touch. And uh, um, so that's kind of how I got to the Senate. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, quite a journey then. Um, so, uh, you know, would you think of, like, the election process, and what was your reaction when you found out that you won? Well, I had a hundred days to run a race. I didn't know what to do, and all these people, <clears throat> everybody told me, "Well, you have to go door to door." And I had a hundred days to run a race, so I went to a hundred doors a night for a hundred days, and I knocked on ten thousand doors, and so. It was pretty interesting, and you just meeting ordinary people all, every night. Of course, I'd been in the supermarket business, so I was used to dealing with people. Yeah. And I knew how to deal with people of all classes mm -hmm. of income, uh, you know, really had been raised uh, not to have any prejudices because everybody was a customer that came in the door. Right, sure. Regardless of who or what they were. Yeah. And so... I didn't have too much trouble getting along with people, and then having been a city court judge, I'd heard enough stories from people about how they were that I could kind of sort through how people uh, behaved. I, I was used to trying to analyze, you know, is this guy guilty or not guilty, or how, how much punishment right. does he of need, course. or things like that. So it all kind of built up, and then I got elected, and... Um, it was the the money raising was a pretty hard thing to figure out because uh, all the nursing home people were mad at Evan Vi, the governor at the time, because he hadn't given them. They thought they were entitled to some different per diem payment for patients that they had or something. So they were pouring money into all these races to try to beat him. And mm -hmm. since I was a key race. I'd go to some nursing home and these people would all show up with these big checks and I'd walk out of there, didn't know anybody, and I'd have like $30,000 worth of checks in a little 
uh, envelope that I was carrying, and I, I just struggled with the concept of that yeah. as a citizen. Is, sure, yeah. Is this right, or am I, what's going on here? So anyhow, that was a kind of a one of the side notes of the thing. And then when I got elected, I was still running this business, and I had two brothers in it with me. And uh, so I was racing down to the state house. I'd come in here at five or six in the morning. And I'd work till I had to go to the state house, and then I'd go to the state house, and then I'd sit there. And it was pretty chaotic. Uh, I wasn't, I hadn't been in the state house before, other than to be sworn in by Governor Bowen mm -hmm. in '74, which was almost 20 years prior. And uh, the whole environment was. Uh, pretty chaotic to me and didn't seem to be very structured or organized or I mean people would file between the House and the Senate why people would file a thousand five hundred bills and I'm thinking now how why how could you possibly go through fifteen hundred bills right. yeah. in three or four months and make any rational decisions you know but uh, after a couple of years and I didn't even file a bill the first year I just sat there and watched and voted and turned around and came back down here and worked. And, yeah. and then uh, I'd been put on the finance committee, which has handled the money and the budgets, and Larry Borst was a longtime state senator who had been the finance chairman for about 35 years. And he and Morris Mills, another guy mm -hmm. like that who had served for a long, long time, um, they they didn't like having a freshman on the finance committee, but Senator Garton, the pro tem, had put me there because he knew I had a business background. And but they kind of began to realize that maybe I could help them out because I had these kind of skills. Right. So over time, I became interested in that and found thought, well, I can make a difference here maybe. And Senator Borst was um, pretty. He's a really interesting guy. He's a veterinarian from the south side of Indianapolis and a real dedicated public servant, but a pretty ruthless guy. And pretty much the way he ran his committee, you probably couldn't run it today that way and, and with all the sensitivities that we have in the world. But he was pretty mean to everybody because he was protecting the money. And he wasn't going to let you have any of that money unless yeah. you just absolutely proved it. It was essential. So I was these kind of these bag man and ran around and did all kinds of whatever he needed to help doing. And after 10 years in the Senate, we had a, I think the Senate majority was 33 Republicans and 17 Democrats. So of the 33 Republicans, I was still number 25 on the seniority list. So that told you yeah. how the place has changed because, so that meant that there were 24 people who actually had more than 10 years in the Senate Wow! at that time. Jeez. So um, by then I was chairing the tax committee and doing other things. Senator Borsch retired. Well, he got beat in the election, and Senator Mills had retired on his own. So I ended up having some opportunities to do things and use the skills that I had. Um, Probably opportunities that not very many people get, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, do you remember the first bill that you sponsored or authored? Yeah, it's a pretty funny bill. Okay. Um, there was a lady uptown here in downtown Noblesville, 
she she was she cut hair. She was and she had a tanning bed in her uh, barber shop, and she was a real heavy, kind of an outspoken lady. And she said, when I was running for election, she said, Luke. I got this tanning bed in there, and the state charges me $150 a year to inspect this one tanning bed, and that's ridiculous. She said, if I vote for you, will you get that changed? I said, well, I'll try. And so the first year I didn't file a bill, and then the second year, Debbie said, hey, did you do anything about that $150? I said, well, no, I didn't, Debbie. Let me check it out. So... I found out that the Department of Health inspected these tanning beds and the fee was $150. And it didn't matter if you had one bed or mm-hmm. 150 beds. Okay. And so um, I, I thought, well, that's not fair. Yeah. So I filed a bill that changed the fees to... Um, like $25, and then if you had more than one bed, it was $10 for each bed more that you had. Yeah. And so the bill went to the health committee, and Senator Miller was the chair lady of the health committee. She didn't give the bill a hearing, and it got down to the last week, and I went to her and I said, well, Senator Miller, I said, you haven't given my bill a hearing. She said, well, you didn't tell me you wanted a hearing. And I said, I'm thinking to myself, well, why would I file a bill if I didn't want a hearing? Right. Yeah. And she's, I said to her, I said, well, I want a hearing. And she said, well, you know, a lot of people file a lot of bills to make a statement, but they don't care whether they get a hearing or not, which was a new concept to me. I yeah. had no idea there was that much <laughs> right. political gyration going on. So she said, okay, I'll give you a hearing. And she said, this looks like a pretty stupid bill. And uh, so... I, I got the hearing, and they had about 15 people testify against me, and they're all from the North American Tanning Bed Association, and there were all these outfits that had all these lots of beds in their uh-huh. facilities, and so this was going to raise the fee on them. Ah, uh, okay. And, but it was going to protect the little guy like Debbie. Right. So they were giving me a hard time, and then the Department of Health stood up, and they opposed the bill, too. And I said, now, why would you oppose the bill? And they said, well, we figured it out, and our revenue from this goes down under your formula. (laughs) And I said, so if I change the formula around so that you get more revenue, then the the, the guy said, well, then we'll be for the bill. (laughs) So I changed the bill around yeah. so that it, it generated more revenue. And they wrote a big article in this magazine from the North American Tanning Salon Association condemning me as being everything except for a communist or a Nazi. And uh, <clears throat> people were asking me, why do you have this crazy bill? And so I got, got it on the Senate floor and... Uh, Everybody was giving me a hard time and making jokes about my bill. And Erlene Rogers was a fine state legislator, and you, you need to call her and see if you can interview her. Uh, she's been interviewed, actually. Okay, yep. she's a fine yep. person. So Erlene got up and said, 
question for the senator, question for the author, which means she wants to ask me a question about my bill. So she got up there, and she's a retired school teacher, an African-American lady from Gary, Indiana, and she says, now, Senator Kenley, she says, whenever somebody files a bill, I always want to know how it's going to affect my district. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to know that I spent all weekend driving around Gary, Indiana, looking for a tanning bed, and I couldn't find a tanning bed or a tanning bed salon anywhere in my district. So why should I vote for this bill? And she was obviously referring to the fact that most everybody up there was African-American and they didn't mm -hmm. use tanning beds. Right. And, of course, everybody in the Senate's about to fall out of their chair laughing at yeah. the thing. And I didn't quite realize that the joke was being played on the freshman guy until yeah. <laughs> we got through there. But anyhow, somehow the bill passed by a slight margin and it went over to the House to a committee and never got a hearing. And so I filed that bill for nine more years, and it never passed. So, mm. Wow, okay. That was my first bill. Yeah, wow, I guess pretty interesting learning experience then with that one. <laughs> Learn about the, a lot about the process, I guess. Um, so uh, what were the interactions like then, generally speaking, between uh, Democrats and Republicans when you served? Well, the first year I was there, we had 28-22 majority, and we had three or four or five of the Republicans in the majority who always voted with the Indiana State Teachers Association, the union. Mm -hmm. And so if you had an education bill, they voted with the union. And so they, this was a very uncertain majority. And it's kind of like the House of Representatives out in Washington right now, yeah. where it's very... So if you wanted to go anywhere or get anything done, you had to, you had to not only convince your fellow Republicans that you uh, needed your, their support, but somehow you had to find some Democrats that were willing to help you. You yeah. couldn't pass a bill unless you could get both sides of the aisle. And that um, proved to be a very interesting dynamic, particularly with the budget bill and things of that nature that were critical. I mean, you have to pass a budget every other year. you got to pass a two-year budget. And uh, so you had to find a way to pass a bill. And so we had this very close margin in the Senate. And for most of that time, you had a Democrat governor, and the House was under Democrat control. Pat, mm. with uh, uh, Mike, uh, oh, who's the guy from Southern Indiana that was this, the uh, Speaker of the House? Is that Phillips? Or? Mike Phillips, yeah. right. Thank you. And then Pat Bauer. Yeah. And uh, so we had to work together. So did the relationship change over time as you served later on? It did. And uh, we never quite reached the majorities like they have now, which are pretty unbelievable. But the, the two things happened. Number one, people in the Republican caucuses became more cavalier about whether they had to leave and listen to a Democrat or not. Mm -hmm. So it didn't matter if they made a good point or not. You just always try to keep them down, keep their numbers down, and vote against everything they wanted okay. in order to deny their voice okay. so that they could go run a good, decent election. So it was very tough for them to get the upper hand on the thing. And then the other dynamic that changed during this period of time was actually due to the uh, uh, thinking of Newt Gingrich. Mm -hmm. And Newt Gingrich was, <coughs> was a rebel in Congress. He's a Georgia 
congressman, but he'd been a professor, and he developed all these theories about how you win elections and how you gain a majority and then how you control the agenda. Mm-hmm. And Newt uh, was pretty ruthless, and his approach was no matter what, how good the idea is from the guy from the other side of the aisle, you never speak well of it, you never vote for it, because the whole thing is about retaining power. Mm-hmm. And so in these legislator, legislatures all across the country, in the state house, you've seen an evolution of applying what, in my opinion, was the Newt Gingrich methodology yeah. of politics. And so it's still pretty prevalent in a lot of state houses. And, yeah. and that can uh, even be used as a, um, in some local government arenas now. You know, you have these arguments in front of school boards about uh, whether somebody's teaching critical race theory or mm-hmm. not, or whether a book should be in a library or should be banned right. or not. And um, s- some people attribute some of that political development to Saul Alinsky, who was a Chicago uh, Democrat socialist activist many Mm -hmm. years ago. And he did use those kind of tactics in elections, but he never achieved the power that Newt Gingrich did or perfected the use of it within the elective body. So I've always felt like it was, this is all a historic trail on from that thinking of that era. Yeah. So uh, we're kind of still dealing with that, but you're beginning to hear more commentary about, hey, you know, at some point we've got to sit down and work together on something and move things forward and be more inclusive about these things. And we haven't quite reached any of those tipping points sure. yet. But you can, if you're just a, if you're just a, someone who's viewing the development of the historic history of the politics, I, that's my feeling of what's happening now. Yeah. And probably the only parallel that I can think of in the earlier history of the country is probably during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, mm-hmm. and that it took some time to smooth all that out. Yeah. Yeah, it, that is interesting, and I've, I've definitely heard that kind of be echoed before by uh, several people that I've interviewed. So, um, does it all? Does the situation today, in terms of like political polarization, remind you at all of like the '60s or anything? Or yeah, um, it does remind me of the '60s. It, it's not as hot now as it was in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And 68 was a pretty rough year. Sure. The country just about got torn apart. Yeah. And, um, uh, but it's pretty, it's pretty, that's the similarity, the, mm-hmm. the heat of the situation, the intensity of the situation. Yeah. 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 Um, let's see, what would you say were the differences between the House and Senate? Well, one of the big differences is, is, when you become a senator and you have a four-year term, you don't really have to worry about an election next year. But when you're in the House, every time you go in there, you're getting ready to face an election within a short period of time. And uh, so you make your decisions based on how you're going to stand up in the election. Now, I had one big advantage that nobody else had. 
they had to beat me to death to get me a run for the job. Yeah. And I really didn't want to do it. Yeah. And I'd be just as happy not doing it. And so when I got elected, I looked around and I thought, you know, just about everybody else in this room owes somebody else their allegiance for helping them get elected. Yeah. But I didn't want it, and I yeah. don't care. <laughs> yeah. So if they want to unelect me, that's just fine. Yeah. So I never worried about um, whether I made somebody mad or not. I only worried about it in the sense of maybe they're telling me something that I would be paying attention to. Sure. But um, uh, so I never felt any compunction to have to justify my position. I just did. So I decided once I realized that I decided now. Okay, I come from Hamilton County and it's pretty heavily Republican area. So uh, unless I really get in trouble, I probably can get reelected without too much trouble if I choose to run. And um, so I thought somebody down here needs to think about what's the best thing for the whole state of Indiana, not just your district. Yeah. So I never asked for any monies to be channeled to Hamilton County for any particular reason unless there was some project that was meritorious enough that I would go to, like, the NDOT, the highway department, and say, look, this is, needs to be improved for the benefit mm -hmm. of everybody. Sure. So I was kind of a... And, and since I was on the outside of Indianapolis, <clears throat> at that we did a lot of things during my tenure that helped develop the downtown Indianapolis. For example, I carried the bill that redid the convention center and built Lucas Oil Stadium. Mm -hmm. And you had to work that out with the Colts and with the mayor, and and then you had to deal with all the rural legislators from everywhere saying, we're tired of giving money to Indianapolis, you know, yep. and um, those kind of things. So that was a real advantage that I had. And when it came to school funding, for example, I wasn't interested in giving uh, IU a preference over Purdue or the Indianapolis public schools a preference over the Muncie public schools I was trying to figure out how did you do the right thing for everybody on mm -hmm. this so that made it real easy for me in some ways yeah yeah I guess it's uh, yeah, definitely uh, a little bit more relaxing if you're not worried about getting reelected all the time no and people would you know, you go to a public meeting and somebody'd stand up and start yelling at me. Well, we're going to get you unelected. And I said, "Get after it. You find somebody good enough, I'll be good with me." With me. <laughs> well, that's the last thing they wanted to hear you say. Right. You know? <laughs> that's funny. Um, did you ever uh, go against party leadership at all when you served? Yeah. Yeah, I had a. I was somewhat independent in that regard, although. <clears throat> Later on, um, I would sort out things that really were significant to me if I felt like I needed to be go against the grain. Yeah. Um, and I would, and other things that I didn't think they were necessarily right on, but it was sort of part of the group effort. Mm -hmm. I, I would go ahead and vote for or against things kind of the way leadership wanted me to vote because I didn't right. want to be just a complete rebel right. about it all. And, um, but I, I never, uh, 
I had two or three scrapes where we had mm-hmm. some, some real conflict, but yeah, you just have to work your way through it. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, see, how influential would you say lobbyists were when you served? You know, that's an interesting <clears throat> dynamic. Um, actually, it, it, it depends a lot on whether the lo- you feel like the lobbyist is a good lobbyist or a bad lobbyist. And if a lobbyist, there are many lobbyists there who sort of have a um, sense of public service about themselves, and they mm-hmm. kind of got where they are because they started out wanting to uh, affect public policy. So they have this trying to do the right thing for Indiana approach. And since lobbyists can focus on one individual issue, they can be an incredible source of positive information. Yeah. And um, so you have to learn how to distinguish between which lobbyists you can believe and which ones you can't believe and which are ones that are telling you the truth and which ones are not telling you the truth and which ones are there that are for a purpose that they consider to be mm-hmm. uh, critical for um, their constituency. For example, um, a, a lot of child advocate services, I mean, those people, most of their their heart, they may be, their mind may be in the wrong place, but their heart's in the right place, mm-hmm. you know. So you have to sort them out just like you do everybody. And so lobbyists are an important part of the uh, dynamic that you have there and one of the areas that that I probably was a little unique for me during the time that I was there we first approved the riverboat gambling and then we had the racinos and then we or the horse tracks and then we had the racinos and most of the governors during all of that time never wanted to be uh, they wanted they weren't against these things, but they never wanted to be affiliated with any of the gambling mm, okay. enterprises because they didn't want to be labeled as a pro-gambling person, so they were very gun-shy about getting involved in anything. And then many of the legislators, uh, they just had their personal opinion, but when I was handling all the budgets and everything, this was a revenue source, plus it was an, a recreation and an entertainment source, and then it had also the ability to um, be a somewhat of a um, an ethical issue because gambling can deteriorate and there can be the source of a lot of crime, a mm-hmm. lot of cheating, a lot. Of, so uh, Larry Boris, this guy who was the tough guy that I told you about, he, he took control of that stuff and he set all the rules and. I helped him, and then when he was gone, I carried on the rules. And we put in things like everybody that works with a casino, even if they're just delivering napkins for the dinner tables, has to undergo an FBI background check to make Mm. sure that they're not associated with organized crime. Yeah. So, so far in Indiana, because we have all these very strict rules about participation, and then we set up the Gaming Commission and the Horse Racing Commission to make sure that the the public that went there would get treated appropriately. In other words, for example, out of the lottery or out of the casinos, there's 
there's variations across the country in terms of how much is the house share yeah. and how much do they have to give back to the gambling public mm-hmm. as the winner's share. And so we were pretty intense about making sure that it was a positive experience for the customer. And we felt like the people running those gambling places, they were going to make money anyhow. Yeah. So um, it quite often it fell, especially after Larry and Morris left, and Pat Bauer kind of fell out of power. Why it pretty much fell to me all the time to be the the guy that policed the, all those situations. Wow. So the um, although the casino people were not allowed to make contributions to your campaigns, they did have lobbyists there, and they had some of the most talented yeah. lobbyists that you would meet. They were pretty persuasive. I'll never forget that um, when they first were going to add the uh, the racinos, which is the gambling card game area and the slot machines to the racetracks. So they, the people that were running the tracks said, well, we will pay a, a $25 million fee for that license to be able to have a casino there. Mm-hmm. So then the house were proud of themselves and they raised that fee to 50 million and I calculated with the help of the LSA people and the fiscal people that the actual value of the license was somewhere between 325 and 350 million wow and um, so uh, when they came when the bill came over to the Senate and their lobbyists came in to see me, we had a meeting, and I said, uh, so we had this conversation, and they were talking about how they were going to pay this $50 million and how generous they were and everything. And I, I said, well, I tell you what, you got two licenses here, and uh, so the deal is I'm going to put it in the bill, and the price for each license is $250 million. And I calculated that it's worth at least $325 million, so I'm giving you a discount. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you have until 7 a.m. tomorrow morning to tell me whether you accept that or not. And for the next 15 hours, they went completely crazy. <laughs> and then they just caved in and paid it, you know. Wow. So that was kind of a unique experience. And, of course... Mitch Daniels was the governor, and he thought I was a big hero because I made him do that. But even Mitch, as strong as he is as a person, didn't want to be tainted with having to make all these decisions about the gambling industry. And so um, that's one area going forward that somebody like in your position needs to watch that Mm -hmm. and make sure that it doesn't, that the dynamic doesn't change. Mm -hmm. That we haven't had any. Um, corruption in the sense that we've had to charge anybody with any crimes in the General Assembly during the last 30 years, but it's because we've been pretty diligent about protecting against all that, and I sort of feel like that's getting lost in the shuffle there. Mm. I don't see any signs of of, um, criminal activity or anything like that, but in order to keep that at bay, and you'll look around at other states and you'll go through cycles like Florida went through a period where they were sending about half their legislators to prison and mm-hmm. Illinois is pretty notorious for that. 
Uh, yeah. So that's a big issue, and it's not one that gets resolved right. just because of the goodwill of the overall body. Yeah. yeah. Everybody wants to do the right thing in the abstract, but it's a little harder than that. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting, and I suppose, um, you know, especially with sports gambling now becoming so prominent. That's right. Um, things are shifting. Well, that was just about the time I retired was when that issue came up, and so I told Ryan Mishler, and I, and the last year I was there, I set it into action. I said, I said, what you need to do is you need to make all of these national uh, sports gambling things and all this stuff over the Internet and that's on TV, the advertising, the whole setup, I said, you need to say that before they can do business in Indiana, they have to be affiliated with one of our land-based casinos. Mm -hmm. And that gives the land-based casino sort of a revenue source and gives them a little protection. But it also reasserts all of those rules about FBI background checks and all yeah. that stuff. It puts that on the yeah. thing to police it. Yeah. So if you just make them be affiliated with those land-based casinos and hold them accountable in that way, you don't have to reinvent the wheel about sure. what is the legal proper way to do this. Yeah. Now, I don't know. They'll probably figure out a way to get around all that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> definitely, yeah, things have changed quite a bit now. Um, yeah, I'll be very curious to see how that all plays out. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, now, how influential would you say, like, the redistricting process was in terms of affecting the political spectrum of the legislature? You know, I've never been able to quite uh, figure that out. Um, I've always was a little afraid to dig into that too much because I wasn't sure what all was being done. Supposedly, they have these methodologies that follow these standards and the Supreme Court decisions have been made about redistricting that show that it is and that it is a legitimate exercise. Now, uh, if you just take the overall vote in Indiana, it's not nearly as stilted as the size of the majority that the Republicans have mm -hmm. today. Um, some of that is uh, due to things other than the redistricting process itself. Mm -hmm. For example, after Watergate, um, and I, my numbers aren't right because I don't mm -hmm. remember exactly, but they went from being Republican-controlled yeah. to a massive Democrat control in one election yeah. just because of Watergate. Yeah. So it all filtered back down. So people who say, well, somebody's cheating on the redistricting process, that's really not quite all the information you need to know to mm -hmm. figure out what the situation is there. Sure. Yeah, definitely very complex. Um, so what would you change about the legislative process based on your experiences? Well, I would, uh, <clears throat> I would consider making the House uh, terms for three or four years, and I would consider making the Senate terms for five or six years. Six years may be too long. But I think the House terms are so short, and it's the same problem in Congress. These guys are never doing anything except for running for office. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's just problematic. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people kind of talk about that. That's chaos, kind of. You have to run all the time. Um, thinking about, like, some uh, 
things I saw, like newspaper articles or whatever, while you're serving. Um, so thinking of some legislation that I, I saw uh, that was going on when you served, do you remember anything about like uh, offenders reentering society? Some legislation. Community transition program. Yeah. That's funny that you bring that up because I was thinking about that yesterday. I was. What year was that? Did you? Do you oh remember? gosh. Ninety. Uh, Something. Sometime in the 90s, yeah, I don't yeah, have okay. the exact. So here's the deal. The Democrats controlled the House, the Republicans controlled the Senate, and um, we, we were passing a budget, and I was an advisor to the budget committee, and um, one of the problems we had was, the question was, we have so many people going to prison, do we need to build a new prison? And so we had a kind of a study done about all the people who were in prison, and maybe there were people in prison who didn't need to be there for one reason or another. <clears throat> and so we decided that maybe one way we could help ourselves, and this was it started out as a, <coughs> a conversation on for one reason, but ended up as a solution for a whole mm -hmm. different reason. We decided that there were a lot of people who were serving fairly lengthy terms, especially back in those days, people who had been convicted of multiple drug offenses. And yeah. in reality, that was their only criminal activity they'd ever been involved in. They mm -hmm. hadn't hurt any other people, but they were there as felons. So <clears throat> we, we decided that maybe we could push this decision off a little bit by reducing the number of people in prison at the end of their term if they'd been there on kind of good behavior. And so if we could reduce the prison population, we could at least stall off these other discussions about whether these drug guys ought to all be in prison or not or mm -hmm. other things like that. So with three days left in the session, uh, Pat Bauer and Larry Borst asked Bill Alexa, a Democrat senator from northern Indiana who later became a judge, mm -hmm. and me to develop some kind of a program to see whether we could let some people loose a little earlier at the end of their term. Yeah. So Bill and I sat down, and in 48 hours we wrote what was called the Community Transition Program. Okay. And what <clears throat> basically what it is is if somebody has served most of their sentence then we would allow, on the recommendation of the prison warden, to the sentencing judge that they, their sentence be reviewed and they could either receive like 60 or 90 or 120 days early release under mm -hmm. certain conditions to transition back into society. Yeah. And there might be, and we tried to say, prisons needed to develop a little program to have these guys get prepared for moving back. So we passed the community transition program as part of the budget bill. Okay. And we wrote it in the last 96 hours of the session. So it never went to a committee, it never had a hearing, and never had public testimony or input by anybody, which you can't do that today. That was pretty blatant. And, <clears throat> but the, the reality was the thing worked incredibly well. And we, we achieved a running average each year of about 1,000 people that got rele released about 90 days early. 
so that we actually reduced the prison population basically wow. by a thousand. And they did studies on whether these guys who were released or not were succeeding or not. And the people who went through the community transition program state after a, like a three, four, five year per review period, it turned out that actually over 80% of them <clears throat> were not being committing other crimes or going back to prison. So it was really a very successful program. And Bill Alexa and I just wrote that, the two of us, and put it in there. And then all the lawyers and judges and everybody, when they saw that in the budget bill, they went crazy because they never had a chance to testify on it. Yeah. They couldn't have any input. All the public defender people were appalled because one of the things that we put in there was that this review was totally in the discretion of the original sentencing judge and there were no due process requirements. In other words, you weren't entitled to a lawyer, you couldn't present a case, you couldn't argue this or that or any of the other legal theories that you could argue because this was just kind of like a gratis reduction of your sentence mm -hmm. by the sentencing judge. And Bill and I were comfortable with that, but a lot of people were pretty... Okay. Uncertain as to whether that was a good idea or not. They didn't like it. Yeah. So, but the thing is still alive and still working, and wow. the program is almost, the language has hardly been changed at all from what we originally wrote. Jeez, okay. <clears throat> yeah. Um, see, another thing I, I saw was that I guess you were someone who, well, was really focused on making sure there was a balanced budget. Do you uh, remember? Sort of the budget bills, the complexities yeah. of that. Yeah, um, actually, Senator Hirschman, <clears throat> <clears throat> we all kind of wanted a balanced budget, an honest budget. And uh, so Mitch is the one that cooked up the idea of... Um, I, I'm trying to remember what the difficulties were. There was something that was a problem with that. Oh, Mitch Daniels, if we had money left over at the end of the year, Mitch Daniels wanted to go back to the taxpayer in the form of an automatic taxpayer refund. Mm -hmm. And it was... It, to me, that was kind of a political decision because if you're going to give everybody back $50 on their thing, you could beat your chest and say you're a big political hero. Mm -hmm. But my argument was if you had $50 extra, there's a lot of taxpayers that would have said, well, why don't you find something that we need fixed like our roads or our schools or something else? And yeah. Why don't you put the money there instead of just giving it back to us because the taxes aren't that high in Indiana anyhow. Mm -hmm. So we had quite a bit of conflict about that, yeah. <clears throat> and it bled over into the balanced budget amendment that was put into the Constitution by Senator Hirschman, and he and I kind of finally worked that out, but I was kind of opposed to that. Okay. I, I was in favor of the balanced budget, but I thought it, in the end it had to rely on the integrity of the people putting the budget together with anyhow, so yeah. I, I thought there was a gimmick quality to it. And actually, Colorado passed a law that said that they would not only have an automatic taxpayer refund, but um, how did their thing work? In any event, what happened was 
once you had a year where your revenues exceeded your your expenses, um, then in Colorado that would tighten down the budget. And so where you had a growth area like in those days, the need for more college graduates, more college uh, trained people was intensifying. But Colorado, under this constitutional amendment for a balanced budget, had to keep cutting the budgets for mm -hmm. the higher ed institutions because of the constitutional amendment. So the thing had to, it could work in a way that was really a negative in most people's minds. Yeah. You know, there's always a few radicals that say, oh yeah, let's just get down to where the government takes nothing, you know. Right. So, <clears throat> so I, that was a pretty intense discussion, particularly between Senator Hirschman and myself. But we, yeah. And Mitch, he wanted to be able to say that he, if they, and Mitch was a totally honest guy, he would do it honestly. But I could see where you get in the hands of the next guy that didn't have the same motivation that he would, it might be handled in a way that would be problematic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, um... <clears throat> Yeah, budgets seem to be always something that's kind of debated about what's the right way of going about it. So, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, speaking of, like, taxation stuff, I know one of the things that I, I read was about, like, there's legislation regarding, like, road funding. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, what... So what was uh, going on with that? Because obviously roads are something that's talked a lot about in Indiana. Well, that was toward the end of my... Career is one of the last things that I did, and actually, when we kind of solved that problem the way we did, um, I looked back over all the things that I'd been involved in, and I decided that I probably touched on all the major subjects that I really cared about. So it's probably time for me to retire and somebody else to have a chance. And uh, but the road funding thing, um, Indiana needed to. We had a cents per gallon tax. So there was no inflationary pickup in there. That so if a if a cost if cost of a truckload of asphalt went up twenty percent, you were still collecting the cents per gallon down here. So you were losing ground on your mm -hmm. infrastructure. And here we call ourselves the crossroads of America, and we have all these warehouses and all that stuff. Yeah. And we had the worst roads you can imagine. <coughs> so <coughs> we finally bit the bullet and agreed to raise the tax to bring it up to where it would have been if we'd had an inflationary or we'd had a cost of living adjustment all those 15 or 20 years since the last tax we passed and um, then we went to apply that to the roads and through the formula and then I kept arguing that um, <clears throat> you need to turn I-65 from Chicago to Louisville and I-70 from Richmond to Terre Haute into toll roads and that way the people who are just passing through could pay their share of the road maintenance. And I figured out a formula and I, and I said, and besides that, they need to be six lanes all across the state, yeah. both north and south. And so I said, uh, um, and I figured out, and of course all the engineers and all the government types, they had these astronomical, they had these astronomical um, um, toll fees that they wanted to have. And I sat down and figured it out with LSA's help that actually you could pass a uh, uh, 
toll road, and you could have for a passenger car, you could charge $9 to go from Louisville to Chicago. Hmm. And you charge $6 to go from Richmond to Terre Haute. And if you did that, plus the gas tax that we had, you could make all these roads, those two roads, six lanes all the way across the state. <clears throat> and for the foreseeable future, you'd have plenty of money to maintain all the roads. But I couldn't get the legislators to particularly the Republicans, to knuckle under and agree to that. And okay. pe- people in certain areas of the of those roads, they thought they were being, their constituents would get mad at them and unelect them because they passed this, okay. um, <clears throat> um, you know, the toll on the road. But so I never could get anybody convinced. And I had a, I even took my campaign funds and I printed a little green button set six lanes and so I handed those out to all the legislators I almost got it done but I couldn't quite get it yeah. done yeah <laughs> wow okay so we were that close to having some yeah, road improvements but we did yeah. pass a good road formula yeah and it does have a cost of living adjustment in it okay and we also <clears throat> equitized or made more equitable the distribution and use of funds and how you go about doing it and all those kind of things yeah Okay. So we do have a much better program today than we did 10 years ago. Okay. And we spent a lot of money working on our roads. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about uh, a property tax limit bill? <clears throat> do you remember anything like that? Well, I wrote the, the property tax reform bill and then put the constitutional amendments in there. And that was that. And I in the early 90s, I had written the major welfare reform bill that passed at the same time Clinton passed one at the federal level and Evan By helped me and the, the reason why I was able to do that was that because I was not a regular political office holder when I went walking to those 10,000 doors as a fresh rookie legislator wannabe <clears throat> I just listened to what people told me and then it was the most amazing thing because you go in these blue collar neighborhoods and they'd all complain about all the welfare cheats that lived in the neighborhood so we had a lot of real scandalous activities involved there that just seemed unfair to the average person that was trying to make it on their own. Mm-hmm. And so I, <clears throat> I wrote a welfare reform bill, and it, and I was kind of about a year or two ahead of the time. And it took a little while for it to sink in on the political front that this was an issue that we needed to reform. And so I got a major bill passed there. And then the same thing happened with the property taxes. I could kind of sense that, particularly in rural Indiana, where you don't, in, in the donut counties around Indianapolis, you got this, um, you got property taxes, you got income taxes, but people are making incomes in Hamilton County, Marion County, and Hendricks County. You go to these 65 rural counties sitting out there in the middle of nowhere, there's nobody making any money, so they, don't yeah. have, they can't pay an income tax. And the only tax they had was a property tax, and so these county people just kept raising these taxes and raising them. And so I kept thinking, we got to solve this. we got to limit the property tax because it's too hard on people with fixed incomes, particularly older people, and it's not fair to this and that. And then even on the classes of different people with the 1%, the 2%, the 3% in the constitutional amendment, <clears throat> I... I kind of bit the bullet because my business today is leasing these buildings. So I own a lot of buildings here in Noblesville. So I put 3% on commercial property and 2% on on housing that's a rental property and then 1% for home ownership. 
to try to encourage home ownership as the cap. Yeah. And <clears throat> so when we, so I kind of cooked that whole thing up, and I'll never forget. I had filed a bill one year, and and the legislators were not ready for it. They they didn't quite. They were afraid of it. So I was getting ready to do it again the next year, and Mitch Daniels called me into his office, and we were talking about different things. And he said, by the way, you're not going to file a crazy property tax reform bill again this year, are you? And I said, well, I think we're going to need to do something. And, and about three or four months later, it became so obvious that that was the driving issue that was on everybody's mind that they put together a commission, and then I chaired the commission. And so then I wrote the bill. Wow. The guy that helped me write the bill was a guy named Dan Novoreski, and he was the fiscal analyst for the state senate, and he had worked for state government in the budget agency and, and in the Department of Corrections and in the uh, Department of Transportation. So he understood fiscal stuff and numbers like nobody you ever saw. And so I said, Dan, we're going to write a property tax reform bill. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And I said, well, we're going to have to do it. So we started working on it, and what happened was there were just like a thousand little petals here and there, and every time you'd push something here, then you'd have to rectify something over here. So Dan and I spent about eight months writing that bill and getting it all balanced out, and we had a lot of help out of LSA. So I filed the bill, and by then, the hatred of property taxes had reached a revolution point, and... Everybody said we needed to have it, so Mitch called me back in. And he says, well, we need this property tax reform bill. And I said, I know we do. And he said, well, I understand you've got a bill ready to go. And I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, explain it to me. So I took about an hour and explained it to him. Mm-hmm. He said, now, you know <clears throat> that if I support your bill, it becomes my bill. So I have to promote it, so I have to get all the credit. <laughs> I said, that's fine with me. I don't care. All we need to do is get it done. Mm-hmm. And so he and I kind of laughed about that because he, he kind of took over the bill in, the, right. in terms of the salesmanship because he had the bully pulpit of the governor's office, which yeah. I didn't have. Yeah. And uh, so we got the bill passed. And when we passed the bill, it was it was so complex and it was so long that it was one of those deals like when they passed Obamacare at the federal level and they said, well, what have you done? And they said, well, I don't know. We'll have to read the bill to find out what we did. Mm-hmm. It was Nobody understood it except Dan and I for about wow. two years. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Funny position to be in where you do something like that. That's true, yeah. Everybody yeah. just takes your word for it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I imagine a lot of people, that's, yeah, that stuff's so complex, it's over their head, they're just like, okay, whatever. Well, it was complex, and uh, you, you just took, you'd, you'd think about one problem, and then you go back into the office a couple of days later, and you say, well, that won't work, we need to do this or that or something. And yeah. So it just took people a long time to catch up with it. Now, actually... The property taxes are beginning to be a little bit of a problem, particularly for homeowners again. Mm. And there, <clears throat> there have been some abuses, or I wouldn't say abuses, but they're sort of the, the top tax lawyers around the state have studied it and they figured out ways to get around things okay. so that local units of government can collect more property taxes than maybe you or I would say, well, that's not right. your fair share, you know, or something yeah. like that. So we kind of need to do another reform. Always a game, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
What about uh, legislation on a college savings tax plan? Oh yeah, the 529 plan. Larry Buell was a state representative and he came up with the idea that if people <clears throat> would contribute to a 529 plan, which was starting to appear around the country, that they ought to get a break on their Indiana taxes. And uh, so he proposed that they get a, uh, some kind of a tax credit or something that might amount to $100. And I, I just took Larry's idea, which was a very good idea, and I just said, if somebody's willing to con contribute to a college savings plan for a kid or a grandson or a child mm -hmm. or whoever in your family, you ought to get a tax credit on $5,000 contribution. It ought to be enough to make a difference so mm -hmm. that you could actually get people to start saying they want to put money into an account for the new grandson for the next yeah. 18 years. So I took, I just took Larry's idea and increased the dimension of it enormously, and Mitch Daniels went nuts because he figured out the fiscal loss to the state was going to be about $50 million in taxes. And I said, yeah, but that's money that's going to people's kids that are going to go to school. I said, we couldn't hardly spend it in a better way, you know. Mm -hmm. So he finally gave in on that one. <laughs> there you go. Um, let's see. So, uh, you know, why did you eventually leave the Indiana General Assembly? Well... At the end of 2017, I'd been there. I mean, here's a guy that really didn't want any part of the government. He spent three years in the United States Army and 15 years as a city court judge mm -hmm. and 25 years in the General Assembly. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I've, I've been pretty fortunate because I've been given a lot of opportunities to do things that could make a difference, and that didn't happen to every legislator. And... Uh, I pretty well covered every major issue that I care about, and so there are other people that are coming along, and they need to have a chance to implement their ideas and to kind of be in charge. One of the problems you run into in the legislature is <clears throat> if you get somebody like me who stays there a long time and does a pretty good job, even though they may have flaws in other people's eyes as to how they do their job, well, they tend to trust them as the safe alternative, so they let them make all these decisions. Like when I told the casino guys they had to pay $250 million mm -hmm. for that license, they tend to trust you. And um, so the power gets kind of concentrated down, and you're not letting everybody be involved in the decisions, yeah. or you're not giving people that maybe have special talents a chance to step up and provide some service. So I just thought, well, I better quit while I'm ahead. Mm -hmm. and, you know. Yeah. So that's the. And then there was one other element. In the previous uh, year, I'd had a primary opponent here in Hamilton County that had been drummed up by all the local mayors that they didn't like it because they thought I was too hard on them. They that I wouldn't do all the things that they wanted me to do. So they got this younger fellow to run against me, <clears throat> and he's a pretty nice young guy, and he's still involved in politics um, on a local level. And um, so I found out that he was just kind of their shield, and he was just there for them. I was unhappy with him, and I kind of went and visited all of them, told them that that was un a bad deal. 
So anyhow, I beat him pretty badly. I think it was 61 to 39. But the reality was <clears throat> that most of his campaign was based on the social media, mm. and Facebook and things like yep. this. And although I, I had my office use those tools, I didn't personally use those tools, and I was not part of that world. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I was always pretty diligent about responding to constituents when they would call me and this and that. But there are so many things that I thought that were pretty unfortunate, pretty negative, and people get on these uh, these websites and they just say anything they want to yeah. say about anybody. Yep. And I didn't care for all of that. And I thought, you know, this is a sign to you that you're not a person of these times. And so you need to move on and let people who are used to living in this world be, um, uh, you know, yeah. do these jobs because you're, even if you don't like what they're saying, you're out of touch with a certain crowd of people. Yep. And I didn't like that feeling. So when you couple that with the fact that I'd been here 25 years and felt like I'd done most of the things that I thought were important, I thought, well, maybe this is a good time to just turn in my badge, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so how would you summarize your time overall then as a state legislator? Well, it was a great opportunity and a great experience and um, one that I never perceived that would be part of my life. Uh, it was a great way to, to do things to, and help people and do what I thought was right and be of service to the citizens. And those were all these the attitudes that I took there. And I... And I think that's the attitude that most legislators have, even legislators that you might have a severe disagreement with over some things. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it because uh, uh, they're trying to um, cheat somebody or get ahead for themselves. They're doing it because they're trying to do what's right, they think, for the citizens, yeah. for, in the most part. Right. And so it was just really quite a privilege to get to do that. And it, it was an affirmation of, um, you might say, our system, which sometimes looks like it's ready to cave in on itself, but mm-hmm. really, I think state government too is an is an opportunity. I had a lot of chances to run for Congress, and I couldn't ever see myself out there, away from home, and you had to wait so long before you could be an effective part of a decision making process. Yeah. And right now, I would say that the decision making process is a little bit broken down. It's not really strong. Mm-hmm. I think that's why you see people like. Um, Mike Pence and Todd Rakita and even Mike Braun now coming back from Washington mm-hmm. to try to get a job in state government because yeah. they think they can be more, actually do something that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure you get the feeling in Washington now that you can make a difference, which yeah. is a concerning point. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, let's see. So what lessons did you learn from your experiences? Well, a lot of funny things happen, and um, I, I think it was overall it was an affirmation about how Americans really believe in their system and they want it to work and they want it to be good, and um, and then the other thing you need to learn is patience. And this Larry Borst, who was such a ruthless guy. You know, you'd come up with some idea, and then he'd say, well, not now. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's, he would be saying that not because 
just his personal opinion, he didn't want to do it at that time, but he had a sense of how the thing was unfolding. It was kind of like the welfare reform bill when Evan Bayh and his team wanted to get on my welfare reform bill and we got down to the end of the session and I refused to sign the conference committee report because I said it's not really good enough yet. Mm-hmm. We need to do it one more year because we've learned too much this year and we need to do it right. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to get it signed so they could take it out and say, look, we did this, you know. Yeah. So we so we waited a year to do it and it really was a much better product. And, uh, and there's a... There are a lot of good people in the political world, and they're there for the right reasons. Sometimes sure. the public needs to give them a chance to show that that's what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Well, you have great opportunity, and you need to take advantage of it, and always remember that you're working for the public. You're not working for yourself. Yeah. Uh, what is the most important job of the General Assembly? <laughs> you know, the most important job in the General Assembly is the one that goes to the person that has the um, willingness to commit to work on something and do it the right way. So it's not always going to be the President Pro Tem of the Senate or the Speaker of the House or the Chairman of the Budget Committee or the Chairman of the Tax Committee. It's going to come from whoever fills the bill mm-hmm. to make a difference about something that they perceive. Because you have a lot of flexibility as a legislator to choose your topics, you know? Yeah. So you can make a difference from almost any position in the legislature. Yeah, true. Um, What would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it works? Well, I don't... uh, I worry that the public, um, at least the people who claim to be interested in politics, don't recognize um, the quality and the integrity of the people that they have in the state house. Mm-hmm. I know that that is not true in every state house in this country. Yeah. So I think you need to remember that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how do you think the state of Indiana has changed over the course of your lifetime, whether the people or the politics of it? Or. <clears throat> um, well, I don't. I think people are always there's a quite a bit of continuity in the way people think about things and I don't the change is probably not as much as we think it is. Indiana has been on a if you start with Otis Bowen as the governor in the 70's which I didn't know him very well or very much about him or very much about the people uh, who were in the legislature at that time except for all those old holders that I served with in the 90s. Um, the, um, we've had pretty good leadership, and Indiana has tried to move forward, and I think that that shows up. For example, in this last census, Indiana actually gained population, and here we are in the middle of the country in a Rust Belt area, mm-hmm. and most of the states around us have lost population. And so Indiana, there's, uh, I think there's something about the governance that we have and this type of society that we've tried to build up 
that we're actually succeeding and having a good place to have people live. Yeah. And it, it, we haven't grown a lot. Yeah. And it's a it's a, it's a pretty fine measurement, but I do think that Indiana has uh, accomplished a lot in for people and still given them a lot of freedom to do the things that they want to do. Sure. That's a that's a hard balance to achieve, and I think we've done that maybe better than our peers over the last 30, 40 years here. Yeah. Some of it comes from good leadership. I mean, Evan Bayh was a good leader. <clears throat> Frank O'Bannon was a good good guy, a good leader. Joe Kernan was a good friend of mine. He was short-term governor. He's a good leader. Mitch Daniels yeah. was an outstanding governor. Mike Pence was a better governor than I thought he was at the time that he was the governor. He, he did, he was... So, and so, um, and Eric Holcomb has done a good job. Yeah. So I think we've had a lot of good leadership in Indiana, and that's that's a fortunate thing. Yeah. Well, I know. Yeah, it's definitely when you look at like cost of livings across the country, Indiana is definitely oh, yeah. on the lower end than many. So, <laughs> um, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about uh, their influence on the Indiana General Assembly? Well, I think. Um, I think the General Assembly, as a body, and particularly as individuals, pay a great deal of attention to, to what they think the constituents are concerned about, and I think they try to react to that. And I think a lot of, a lot of constituents and a lot of people in Indiana, just like everywhere else, don't realize what a benefit that is, and they, they don't hold up their end of the bargain. Our voting rates are not very high. Mm -hmm. And more people ought to vote. I mean, if you want to be a part of it, you need to vote or you need to yeah. be a part of some civic effort somewhere, somehow. And I don't see a lot of that. And probably because of my age and the fact that I went through basically the draft and had to go into the service, some type of service for young people doesn't have to be military service, but I think it would be really beneficial for everybody somewhere in the age of 18 to 24 to give a... 18 months or a couple of years of service mm -hmm. to not just to the state but to the whole country. I think you develop a different perspective about your obligations as a citizen if you've had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's see. Well, is there uh, anything I didn't ask about that you wanted to mention? Or? You asked a lot of questions. Okay. <laughs> I'm surprised you brought up that community transition program. Well, I good. thought everybody in the world had forgotten about it. Nope, that's right. It's <laughs> coming back to life now. So There you go. Awesome.